So joining me today is Ibile Okoye, who has recently been the illustrator and co-director of the DW documentary called Oil Promises, How Oil Changed a Country. You're from originally from Nigeria, but you're joining me today all the way from Berlin, Germany. Yep. So thank you again for joining me and taking the time to um, talk to me today. It's my pleasure to join you, Perushka. Before we get into the documentary, um, if you can briefly explain, you know, what, what the documentary is about for those who haven't watched it or those who may not be familiar with it. Okay, this documentary is um, it's about the discovery of oil in the western coast of uh, Ghana. And when this oil was discovered, promises were made to the people that it's going to change their livelihood, that they are going to get, um, they're going to be employed in the factories and they are going to build schools and hospitals and new settlements. Actually, they dislocated some people from their villages because they wanted to use that land to build new settlements. And they promised that they were going to build a big city with 500,000 inhabitants, like in a code that they have a, a pact with a Korean company that is going to make this futuristic city possible for them, you know. And uh, the villagers, some, most of them spent the money, little money they had and trained in order to work as hotel uh, service people, clerks, mm -hmm. secretaries, and uh, even there was this woman who trained to drive uh, um, this heavy duty vehicle for right. flying roads. Uh, I've forgotten what it's called in English, but my, <laughs> in German it's called a Anyway, she trained, to, she trained to drive a forklift and that vehicle too. And this other guy spent all his money to train as a welder. So all of them got really active on their own and uh, wanted to train in order to be part of the 200,000 jobs that were promised them. So in the end, to cut it short, in the end, none of them got in there. Mm -hmm. None of them got a job. None of them was moved into the new buildings. Houses were built all right, but the people who lived in the houses were engineers from some other parts of Ghana and foreigners who came to work on the project. So none of, the, none of these locals who were displaced got a place in the houses. They didn't get a job, nothing changed. Hmm. And actually one of them became homeless. The girl, the woman who trained to drive a forklift, she got a point, she became homeless. I had to sleep on the streets and she was going from door to door asking for means to survive. And what, what uh, made you want to contribute to this documentary? Um, when I was approached by the producers to be part of it, that was the same exact question I asked them. So the answer they gave me is because that I'm very outspoken and critical of what is going on down there in my West African region right. so that they know that I am the best person to, because actually some of these things we have had as private conversations, some related issues. So that was why they found, they decided that I was going to be the best uh, person. Being that I also come from a Nigerian oil producing mm -hmm. country where we had this disaster, it was a mess. So weighing all these things, I found it quite okay that I should be, uh, I found it interesting really, because if uh, eventually it gave me the opportunity to officially say the things I had always wanted to say. 
Yeah. Can you hear me? Is my audio okay? Yep, you're good. You're good. <laughs> and um, this was this documentary was filmed over a span of a decade, over ten years. Yes. Um, what uh, you know? What were some challenges that you that you uh, came across while filming this over over this? I decade? I wasn't part of the filming crew. Okay. Filming was done by Elke Sasse of Berlin Producers and her crew. They were the ones who were always traveling to Ghana and filming and coming back. And uh, so personally, I can't, I, I wouldn't speak on the, uh, I wouldn't be able to speak on the challenges while filming because okay. I wasn't mm -hmm. in Ghana. Yeah. Okay. And, uh, and what about, you know, the, the illustration part of it, you know, how satisfying was that to see your work in, in this documentary and, you know, bring Well, I'm so happy to have my animation uh, in the documentary. Of course, it's not a very advanced form of animation, but it served the purpose of uh, making the statement that was supposed to be made, you know. So I am very uh, thrilled to be able to use my animation to give it a voice for instance, to kind of uh, recall things that people do not, might not really be able to figure out. For instance, when we were talking about the, the, this cellar where they sold slaves, you know? Mm -hmm. So with that, it was just an illustration there, but at least with that little uh, visual element, mm -hmm. people would be able to figure out what went on, what happened in these places. Because the thing with human beings is that sometimes we hear things we hear everything about it, but we only need visuals in order to get in, to connect to what happened there. So I am quite happy that uh, my animations were in there to tell the story. And uh, earlier you said, you know, these, uh, the people in Ghana were promised employment, they were promised opportunities, they were promised yeah. um, a better quality of life, essentially. Um, did it surprise you at all that these promises were unfulfilled and temporary and like did that surprise you at all? Well, it doesn't it didn't surprise me because I come from a country that actually functions exactly like that and as we know most of the West African co countries act function like that there is so much corruption and uh, false promises actually most of these economies are built on false promises mm -hmm. so they it's, it wasn't a surprise for me. Actually, when it was going, I was, uh, I was quite curious to see from over the time that there was fil filming, I was quite curious to find out how it's gonna end up if things are going to start uh, really going the direction they, want, they promised it to go. Especially they were saying that they weren't going to do it like Nigeria, you know, that kind of right. a thing. And, uh, you know, and uh, even with a mess in Nigeria, you could still find people who really got good positions in the oil companies, but it doesn't uh, justify anything. So in this case, it was not a surprise at all. Mm. I was afraid for them, actually. <laughs> I was afraid for them. <laughs> yes. So, you know, this documentary is called How Oil Changed the Country. Now, aside from the, you know, the, the in environmental destruction and the economical destruction that we've seen in the documentary, um, how do you think oil has really changed Ghana, in your opinion? It really didn't. Well, the change came economically, but from 2012, it started going down. Because when this promise came, things boomed, like it was like a huge boom. Right. 
but it started going down. So it really, or in my opinion, maybe it changed in the uh, governmental places, but for me, as long as the common man doesn't have a part in this change, it's no change for me. So in my direct opinion, it really didn't change anything. Mm-hmm. Actually, it made it worse. That's my, I, my opinion. Yeah. I mean, what, like, what do you think these big companies that, you know, that come to um, underdeveloped countries, what do you think they don't really um, care much about the people that are impacted? Because uh, capitalism, that's the way it functions, that they don't really care. Everything is about money. Everything is about money. Mm-hmm. And this is, uh, unfortunately, the main thing that happens in these businesses. Second, for instance, I have an example, you know, now we got the pandemic and I have a fashion line and we're making masks and all that. So um, there was recently, the German government said that now only medical masks are allowed on transport and in shops and all that. So we were discussing this in a forum. So somebody, I said, it's a cool idea. Somebody said to me, how can you find it cool? You sell masks too. Mm-hmm. And I was like, no, for me, health first. And she was like that. But if they let this, we should t- sign a petition because if they let this happen, you are going to go out of business. I said, no, I am not going out of business because I'm not selling masks for right. business. I'm selling them to contribute to the health uh, measures. So this is the, the, the mindset that these big companies have. They don't care what is going on. The main thing is, what strategy are we going to deploy to get us income, to get us revenue and profit? So, and then the second aspect of it is that, uh, is corruption, bribery and corruption. There are always people out there who they bribe to, so that they can do their businesses without being queried, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's all, there are two involved in it because if the local authorities wouldn't allow this thing to happen the way it is, it will reduce. But because it is allowed, these companies, they bank on it and they go boldly to do whatever they want to do. Yeah. In, so in the you know, going to the point that you just made too, you know, in the documentary, you illustrate, you know, these grand hotels that were supposed to be built on the coast of Ghana and, you know, um, new infrastructure, new roads that were supposed to make the lives of people easier, essentially. Mm -hmm. Um, In what ways do you think, you know, the lives of people would have actually or really changed, you know, with the oil or tourism industry? Yeah, the lives of people would have actually changed if they, pro- if they deliver the promises they made. For instance, the hospitals they promised to build mm-hmm. and the employment they promised to provide them. And there was this guy who was walking kilometers away to charge his phone. So if they had eventually, okay, eventually towards the end, they brought electricity to that place, right? But the promises they made, it wasn't even like, all, all the areas that were that got electricity. And then they tarred, the thing with the tarred road, it was so funny, it's just like you see it, you know, from the view, you see that it was just, they had a little bit of tar left 
and they'd be like, where can we dump this? Oh, like, just drop it over there. And they tarred some road. And the place where they tarred this road, there is nobody who owes a car in that place. It's not, it's not a joke. Nobody in this village owns a car. So this is like investing in the wrong uh, place because what would have benefited the villages better would have been electricity, running water, and hospitals and schools. Those would have been the key things that they should have invested in. So it's- Do you think to a certain extent that, that um, uh, the people would be better off with the, interfer with the interference of the oil and tourism industry, because it lo it looks as though they've been left behind. Like it, you know. They they would have been better off because there is also this phenomenon of this this uh, strange seaweed that came on the shores when they started the moment they started drilling. Nobody has a kind of a confirmed if it was a result of the oil or not, right. but it is very obvious this change came immediately. They started drilling. You know the offshore work mm. so it is quite understandable that these things kind of float to the shore and they blocked the nets of the fishermen so now they were even struggling and with that they were they started struggling even more because they couldn't fish anymore they couldn't catch any fishes their nets were filled with these algae you know mm -hmm. so they would have been better off uh, in my opinion they would have been better off without this interference because their the, the, uh, means of livelihood, which is fishing, would have still gone, continued, you know, because agriculture is really, it's a thing out there that really brings income, even on small scale, you know. And, you know, when, when they were promised, when the, uh, the people of Ghana were promised that they were going to be given a better, a better quality of life, why do you think um, the, the people of Ghana expected their lives to change instantly or rapidly or even overnight too, you know, they, 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 they had really high expectations. Yes, they had high expectations because they were given very, very high promises. Yeah. Because if they, depending on what you tell somebody, because the major, the thing that causes disappointment is expectation. And if somebody gives you a kind of a, a promise, your, your, your disappointment or your expectation is measured by the amount of uh, promises you receive. So because they were promised um, a lot of things, they believed it was going to happen, actually, because they give them, they, they give a timeline that from so-so and so period and so-so and so period, the road to so-and-so place will be tarred, there will be schools and how many uh, uh, employment openings for people. And they gave them a timeline, this is going to happen. So they built on that timeline. And then for them, uh, suddenly being in such a village, and then suddenly you, somebody promises you that you're gonna get a modern, modern houses with modern bath, bathrooms and modern roads at a police station and all that, you know? So for them, it's not something that they had to slowly key into because it came so suddenly. So right. they believed instantly. So their expectations were quite high instantly. And there's also this level of optimism as well that, that you pointed out in your documentary. Um, you know, towards the end, there's, there were people that, that were holding on to this, like, you know, optimism or empty, empty promises that they were like, okay, the, the government is going to come. They're going to come. But how... How long can they remain optimistic about 
about these promises? How long can they hold on to that? The African is very optimistic <laughs> and we never give hope. When I was living in Nigeria in my teenage years, I had this friend, a Canadian. She said to me, she's in, she lived in Nigeria. She said, I remember she said, if I look at what is going on in this country, if half of it should happen in Canada, people would be committing suicide every day, like in thousands. Mm -hmm. But we have, Africans are so optimistic. So no matter what, they keep hoping. It has a good and a bad side, you know, because when they are so optimistic, it doesn't, uh, they kind of uh, relax and they don't really want to fight to get that which they want to achieve. And yes, some might not like what I'm about to say. Religion also plays a role because religion tells you believe in God and hope. So they believe in God and sit and hope. Like where I come from in Nigeria, there is this popular saying, whatever you talk about, they say God will do it. Okay, so we sit down, fold our hands and wait for God to do it. So these are things that they work positively and negatively. It's good that people have, are very optimistic because it solves, it solves a lot of problems. You don't have some psychological issues and this is why we don't also have a, a psychologist. If you're a psychiatric or psych psychologist in those places, you wouldn't uh, survive because nobody's gonna come because people always solve their problems within the family system, within the communal uh, environment system, you know? But then on the other hand, this optimism makes people that they don't really know when to stand up and fight for something because they keep hoping, being optimistic, we were promised it's going to happen or God is going to do it. So it works two ways. Mm, right, I was just going to ask you, you know, is it, is it dangerous? <laughs> is it too dangerous for people to, to continue to remain optimistic? But I think, I think you just difficult. touched on that a little bit, you know. Yeah, it's difficult. But I would say that most, it's quite difficult to say because uh, as we see, yeah, you mm -hmm. said optimism carries people you know <laughs> <laughs> and uh you know in the in the documentary too you you point out that um there seems to be this waiting game now you know are, are the people are the people waiting for the government to to bring them more opportunities or is the government waiting for the people to you know to to demand what they're actually or demand their needs or you know there's this like waiting game on both sides so, you know, how, how do you think that's going to play out in the end? Well, nobody, no, no government of any country in West Africa is waiting for people to demand what they need, because even if they demand, they're not going to get it. Mm. Rather, they promise it. Promising is, is, a, is a normal thing. So they keep promising and the people keep hoping. During, when the elections come, they distribute like sacks of rice to some small communities and get their votes. They eat the rice and they're quiet and nobody says anything anymore. Mm. You get? So this is the mentality that um, it needs a long time to change. It's happening in most countries out there and it's not going to change easily. The government is not waiting for them. 
to demand. They are waiting for the government to do something, but the government is ignoring them. Who do you think is really at fault here? You know, is it is it the the government? You know, promising people that that they'll they're going to get opportunities, or is it the people itself? You know, where they're they're just you know standing there and and you know just you know you know uh, pointing fingers to find who's at fault is some is a dicey thing. In this case, also, both parties are uh, kind of uh, people who are fueling the situation. Because look at it this way, a revolution always needs people sacrifice something. Like recently, the NSARS movement in Nigeria and mm -hmm. what happened there and all that. So it takes uh, a people with guts to stand up and say, this is what we want. And... If you are a people with, with hopes, lots of hopes, right. guts kind of miss. You know, you, it doesn't work together. Hope and guts don't go together. Mm -hmm. So that's the problem we have there, you know. So they still, this hope keeps them alive and it makes them kind of keep out of trouble, I would say. Out of the trouble of going to demand what they want. And then on the other hand, you know that it's not, you can't protest in such places. It's not like in developed countries where you can go protest and you're protected by the police. You go out on the streets and the police is the first to shoot you down. So it's a very difficult situation. And it is very, it is crunching. And because when you look at it from all angles, there is absolutely no way out. Okay, enlightenment and trying to teach people how to stand up to their rights even me talking from here am i going to go on the streets to protest on such things these are the questions we have to ask ourselves because of course we talk talk okay people are not protesting but then if i sit down and ask myself would i be willing to step out there to protest in such an environment where you know that you as a protester on the street you are signing your death sentence in a way mm -hmm. so these are the questions that I could, I could ask myself too so you see it's a uh, finding the fault who's at fault it's a very it's not it's, it's not clear you can't really say who is you know and you know people that people that watch maybe have watched the documentary for the first time and and they see that okay well the people of Ghana have given have been given opportunities they've been exposed to what employment really is um and then you know how do you how do you respond to people who say well they've already got a taste of this employment what more what more do they want and can't they just go back to to kind of doing what they were doing before well who nobody got employed just a few engineers got employed and the people who got employed are not from these regions mm, right. they came from Accra and the big cities to take up the job but the people in this region where the oil was found that they displaced, none of them got a job there. Even as a house, a housemaid or whatever you call it, as the Chinese people who came to build this pipeline, they came with their own uh, domestic staff. Right. Right. So not even, nobody, none of them got a job there. Mm. Right. And, you know, in, in the documentary, um, something that I, that I thought about was that this, you know, the storyline is not, it's not um, unfamiliar, you know, it's not a story that we haven't been exposed to before, where big corporations come to underdeveloped countries, and then as a result, people, 
people are displaced or people lose opportunities or resources. What do you think is different about this documentary in particular? I think the, on the, in the first place that uh, Elke Sasse and her team, that they took the time, the patience to document this over the years. It's even what is amazing about it because there are documentaries that go back to tell stories of what happened, you know, but this one, they, they watched every development through the years and documented the same person. So that way, the data, the information that they, they got there, mm -hmm. you, could, uh, you could be sure that it's 100% untwisted. That there is no bias there and there is no mistake in anything there so and i think that what made it also different is that the format that they used now has given people even more uh people are keyed in more into what is going on there because waiting the format they use people would be waiting to see what is going to happen so a lot of people are going to get more insight into how things function down there than they would have gotten if it was just a one-off documentary that was made uh to tell a story from the past you know mm. so and then you could also see during the documentary one of the the guys the main persons that they followed his wife died you know, and he married again and he had children. So this is really um, an amazing work. I would say uh, that it stands out in my opinion, not because I am part of it. And that is also part of the reason I am so glad to be part of it. And that was part of the reason why I was very keen on being part of it because it is, uh, it contains pure, uh, it is a documentary in the real sense of it, you know. Mm -hmm real-time documentary and uh you know what what do you think is really what do you think is really going to change in ghana you know once this document once people enough people see this documentary and you know what, what do you think is is really going to change i don't know I, I i wouldn't i wouldn't be so sure i would like to remain optimistic and hope that it will kind of mobilize people to reason differently, you know, even if it, to mobilize the mindset, to kind of change the mindset of people, to actually make them think about uh, the effect of all these promises that never come true. Because if we hear about the government doing this and all that, and you don't see anybody who is a direct victim of it, then you wouldn't really know the, the magnitude of this uh, atrocity. I call it an atrocity. But seeing these people in the end, how they ended up and all that, it's a clear example of how, how evil that is, what they've done down there. So I don't, I don't know what is going to change, but I am hoping, we're back to hope. <laughs> I am hoping that people would, uh, would try to uh, use that documentary as, uh, as a means of changing their mindset mm. and starting to speak out if things are kind of trying to find means of protesting about, of trying to get what belongs to them. It is a hope. If it will happen, I don't know. Mm. And maybe you've touched on this a little bit, but um, I guess my last question for you is, you know, as a filmmaker and as an illustrator and, you know, what, what do you think, what do you hope people can, can actually, you know, take away from this documentary if, if they have, if, 
they're not uh, if they don't really know much about what's happening in Ghana or Africa, you know, what what do you think they can they can take away from this? They they can actually begin to understand what these companies are doing down there, mm-hmm. because it's not very it's not always very clear to understand. People are people don't don't look people don't look in there they hear it but nobody looks so i hope that people from the outside that they are able to look into uh to to kind of uh how do i say that it gives them an insight into how this game is being played out there so that they would know that these which corporations these corporations that what that they are not really helping people i hope that it makes people from the outside know that somebody was saying, for instance, somebody com- uh, commented that saying that right at this moment, somebody's buying a Lamborghini or something like that from the money, from that oil. Meanwhile, the people who have been displaced to make this function, they are still suffering. So I hope that people get more of this mindset, hope, and uh, just to realize that it is not right. Mm. It isn't right. And in their own little spaces, they might start, uh, they could start mobilizing people and informing them and educating and enlightening on what is going on down there, which a lot of people don't know. Mm. You know, we boycott things, for instance, you have products that says uh, it doesn't contain palm oil because they write that because they know that people are starting to boycott palm oil because of the the method that they are using to get these resources from South America. Okay, so... I wish that people would also realize that this area has been totally destroyed because of this oil and then find a way if there should be a boycott of any product related to any of these companies that are doing this out there. You know, for instance, in the, when you come to the uh, Ghana's GDP, like a gross domestic product, mm-hmm. 2012, after the oil, it was just going, I've forgotten how the percentage, but after the oil, to, after, after this was announced, 2012, it rose to 25%. Mm. Wow. Okay. From 2012, it went 25%. And then the whole thing started and it started going down. And by the end of 2013, it went down to 3%. And 2014, it went up again to 12% about that. And it was just going this way and that way mm-hmm. and 2016 it went down to four percent and 2017 in the last quarter it went down again to 12 percent. it was just going up and then 2018 five percent and then 2020 it went up to 13 percent. but now came covid and now it's gone down to minus five percent mm-hmm. as it is you know, because of course they don't have any resources the hotels even the hotels that were built or whatever they built there, it's not, it didn't generate any income mm. because of the, I mean, from 2020. So in, if you look at it on a general, from a general point of view, since the discovery of that oil, nothing improved. Mm. Wow. It improved in that first year, but you can watch it and see that it was going down. Mm. Ghana really struggled because uh, in the 80s, when they had issues, they came to Nigeria as refugees. Eventually, some of them went back and built their country. And Nigerians started sending their children to school in Ghana for better education. Mm, wow. 
cities. It's just there is this imbalance which happens in most African or developing countries. In the cities in Accra, there are really good schools and big, good universities mm -hmm. where people from Nigeria send their children to study because they don't have this in at home. But then you go a little bit, you step a little bit away from there and you find the biggest margin of people living in abject poverty that don't even have a place like a toilet. And this is all over the place. And it's been like that. Hmm. I don't know when it's going to change. Sorry, I'm diverting a little bit. No, now. no, it's okay. I don't know when this is going to change. It might not change. But even if it's going to change, it's going to take a while. There is no middle class anywhere out there. There is no middle class. And without the middle class, how does an economy function? I'm not a financial expert, but I know that the middle class is very important for, for a stable economy. Right. Well, like you said, it, it's going to take a long time for us, for anyone to see progress, for anyone yeah. to see change. But Ibile, I want to thank you again for joining me and, and taking the time to, to talk to me today. I really appreciate uh, our time today. Thank you.